What's good, everybody? I hope the hustle and bustle of the fall is treating you well. I'm so grateful that you're here to join me on my personal journey of becoming a better person, better mother, better friend, and a better leader. Please double check your app right now to make sure that you're subscribed to the show. And if you enjoy this episode, please share it with a friend who's going to benefit. These episodes become a lot more powerful when you discuss them with a friend or a coworker. And do me a favor and please review the show to make sure that people who are just passively perusing for new shows know how much you like it. I'm so excited for you to hear today's conversation with Kim Scott. She's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity. Kim led AdSense, YouTube, and DoubleClick online sales and operations at Google, and then joined Apple to develop and teach a leadership program. Kim has been a CEO coach at Dropbox, Qualtrics, Twitter, and many other tech companies you have obviously heard of. She received her MBA from Harvard Business School and her BA from Princeton. She's the author of three novels, and she and her husband, Andy Scott, are parents of twins. Today's episode is not just a rehashing of radical candor. Kim's going to share why she had to write an update to her book because some people were misapplying it, how being nice on your team can produce mediocre work product, how to help your team members do the best work of their lives and get into their zone of genius, what she thinks of a new psychological safety tool that I've been trying out with teams, the special challenges women face when receiving feedback and giving feedback, and what men need to know about giving feedback to their female direct reports. Please tweet, Instagram, and Facebook your biggest takeaways from this amazing conversation with Kim Scott. Kim Scott, welcome to the show. Very excited to have you here. Thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Kim, I have a radical belief. Can I share it with you and get your thoughts? Please. So I believe that nice teams create average work product. What do you think? I mean, it just, I feel uncomfortable even saying it, but I believe it. I think that's correct. But I would say that kind teams produce exceptional work. So what's the difference? Because I live in the Midwest and everybody here skews super nice and nice means non-confrontational. Yeah. You know, we save all of our frustrations at work to talk about with our spouse only. Yeah, yeah. And even then, sometimes we pull our punches. Right. (laughs) So I think the difference is this. I think that we are very often taught a false dichotomy when it comes to work. We're taught that you're either really nice, but kind of incompetent or mediocre, or you're really great, but you're a total asshole. And I don't think those are our choices. (laughs) I think that you can be genuinely kind and at the same time, you can challenge the people you work with directly and uncover mistakes so that you fix them and create the kind of environment where everyone can do the best work of their lives. And that's what radical candor is. It's about caring personally. We don't want to lose that. That's one of the great things at the, in, in, about working in the Midwest is that people do seem to really care about one another. But at the same time, you want to challenge each other directly so that you fix problems and maybe even prevent problems in your work. And that's what radical candor is all about. 
And how does it help us create better work? Because it's uncomfortable, right? I guess I'm looking for a sales pitch to convince people that the drawbacks of being uncomfortable are going to be outweighed by all the benefits. Yeah. So I think one of the things that has helped me, because I grew up, I grew up in the Mid-South. I grew up in Memphis. And I definitely was raised to avoid conflict and never to say no. And that was my biggest struggle as a leader when I started when I started a software company in, in New York City. I had to I had to overcome that. And the thing that I learned is that if you think about, let's think about sort of care personally and challenge directly in a structured way. When you do challenge someone, but you forget to show them you care, that's what I call obnoxious aggression. That's being an asshole. And we all do this from time to time. And in fact, don't. it's so tempting to put labels on things. Please don't use this framework, this way of thinking about things to label other people because we are all obnoxiously aggressive at least once a day. So, so And then very often when we realize we've acted like a jerk, Instead of moving the right direction on the care personally dimension of radical candor, we move in the wrong direction on challenge directly. We say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't really mean it. It doesn't really matter. We sort of utter the false apology or we are are sort of backstabbing even. We say, oh, it's fine. And then we tell somebody else it's not fine or we're political and that, that is the kind of toxic work behavior that I call manipulative insincerity. And it's kind of fun to tell stories about obnoxious aggression and manipulative insincerity. But in my experience, the vast majority of us make the vast majority of our mistakes when we are high on care personally, when we, when we really do genuinely worry about the other person's feelings and, and their well-being. But because we're so reluctant to hurt their feelings in the short term that we don't challenge them directly. And this I call ruinous empathy. And understanding that ruinous empathy is actually meaner than radical candor in the long run is what helped me get over the hump of the reluctance to have those awkward, uh, uncomfortable conversations. So I'll tell you a story about probably the worst moment in my career where I had hired this guy, we'll call him Bob. And Bob was smart, he was charming, he was funny. He would do stuff like we were at a manager offsite and we were playing one of those endless get to know you games. And nobody really wanted to be playing the game, but nobody had the courage to say, this is a giant waste of time. And Bob was the one who, uh, who had the courage to raise his hand and say, hey, look, this is taking a long time. I can see we're all stressed out. I've got an idea. It'll help us get to know each other. And it's really fast. Whatever his idea was, if it was fast, we were down with it. And he says, let's just go around the table and tell each other what candy our parents used when potty training us. Weird, but fast. <laughs> and weirder yet, we all remembered. And then for the next 10 months, every time there's a tense moment in a meeting, Bob would whip out just the right piece of candy for the right person <laughs> at the right moment. So Bob was quirky, a little weird, but he was a, he was a, a moment of levity in every meeting. We loved working with Bob. One problem with Bob. He was doing terrible work, absolutely terrible work. And it was so confusing because he had this history of incredible accomplishments. I was so puzzled, like what was going on with Bob? 
I learned much later the problem was that he was smoking pot in the bathroom four times a day, which maybe explained all that candy. But anyway, I didn't know any of that at the time. All I knew was that Bob would hand stuff into me with shame in his eyes. And I would say something along the lines of, oh, Bob, this is a great, great start. You're so smart. We all love working with you. Maybe, maybe you can just try to make it a little better. And of course, he never did. This goes on for 10 months. And eventually, the inevitable happens. And I realize that if I, if I don't fire Bob, all my best performers are going to leave the team. And so I sit down to have a conversation with Bob that I should have, frankly, started 10 months previously. And when I finished explaining to him where things stood, he pushed the chair back from the table. He looked me right in the eye and he said, why didn't you tell me? I thought you cared about me. And as that question is going around in my head with no good answer, he says to me, why didn't anyone tell me? I thought you all really liked me. And now I realized that I had screwed up in a bunch of different ways. I had failed to solicit feedback from Bob. I had never... the. I had never learned from him what was going well from his perspective. And more importantly, I had never asked him what I might be doing. Maybe, maybe I was doing something that was driving him so crazy. He was forced to toke up in the bathroom (laughs) four times a day. But I never never found out because I never asked him. I also was not giving Bob either praise or criticism. I was not, the kind of praise I was giving him was really just a head fake. And I was never telling him when his work was nearly, not nearly good enough. And probably worst of all, I was create, I was failing to create the kind of environment in which everyone would give Bob praise that was meaningful and also would tell him when he was going off the rails. And because I had failed Bob in all these different ways, just trying to be nice, I'm now having to fire him because of it. Not so nice after all. And I realized in the moment that it was it was too late to save Bob. Even Bob at this point agreed he he should go. His reputation on the on the team was just too tarnished. All I could do in that moment was make myself a very solemn promise that I would never make that mistake again. And that's that's why I wrote the book Radical Candor. And that's why I came up with this framework to help people see when they think they're being nice, sometimes in the long run, it's actually the cruelest thing they could possibly do. One of the examples that you use in the book is it's like not telling somebody that their fly is down. Yeah. Yeah. Not so nice after all. Um, and, and we can go around the quadrants. Like if you if you don't tell someone their fly is down and then you tell other people, that's manipulative insincerity. If you don't tell them their fly is down because you don't want the awkward moment and you don't want to make them feel uncomfortable, then that's ruinous empathy. And if you scream at the person at the top of your lungs, look, your fly is down. So everybody else hears and they feel humiliated. That's obnoxious aggression. But pulling them aside and say, hey, I would want to know in your shoes that my fly is down, your fly is down, however you want to put it. We know that's the right thing to do. I feel like I've gotten really good at telling people that their fly is down. But and I understand the the reasoning and the logic of what you're saying. 
But we have this whole other interview on the show this season about how to not get kidnapped. Uh huh. And one of the hot tips from this expert is to shove your thumb into somebody's eyeball. And yeah. can I just say that the idea of telling somebody like that their work isn't meeting expectations gives me the same feeling that poking somebody in the eyeball does. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Me too. I totally, uh, I totally get it. On the other hand, on the, and that's your, that's your short term. One of the things that I've done in the second edition of Radical Candor, which comes out in October, is I've, I've, I've sort of made a tweak to this framework. And I've said, you got to understand the difference between ruinous empathy and compassionate candor. So I think very often when it, when it comes to empathy, we get paralyzed by it. We get so fixated on the short-term upset that we're unable to see past it and to see what is in the best interest of the person in the long term. And very often that when you, even when someone is really bad at a job, this is another tip for your, for your podcast listeners. Think about a job that you really were not good at and that you didn't enjoy. So for me, that's, that was a summer job I had as a bank teller. I was terrible. I was terrible at it. And I never balanced and the, the books because, because I never corrected the, ch- I never counted the change correctly. And of, of course, the errors got caught in one direction, but not the other. So uh, the bank lost a lot of money on me that summer. And I was giving out money. I was definitely the bank teller you wanted to go to. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, but I, it's not that I wasn't trying. I really was trying hard. I just, this is not, not, uh, not something that I was going to develop, develop my, my skills in was not the job for me. And my boss kept encouraging me, you know, you can do this if you just, and so now all of a sudden, not only was it kind of a skill set failure, it was a moral failure because I wasn't trying hard enough. And the truth of the matter is, it would have been better for the bank and better for me for us to have an honest conversation and for her to say, are you enjoying this? What, you know, what are you hoping to get out of the summer? And I, I think it would have been better for everybody if I had gone and mowed some lawns that summer or something. <laughs> so... So I think that if 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 you think about if, if you think about helping your job as a leader is to help someone find a job where they can be do excellent work where they can do the best work of their lives. If they're if they're struggling in a job and they're not getting better, they're probably not that happy. You're not doing them any favors to let them muddle on. You're, 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 in fact, almost creating a life of quiet desperation. You're creating, you're creating this sort of, oh, well, they're okay. You're creating mediocrity. And nobody wants to be mediocre. And I, nobody is mediocre. Every human being has potential to do work that, that, that gives their lives meaning in some way or, or other, that, that, where they can be really excellent at that job. My friend calls that their zone of genius. Yeah, everybody has one. Everybody has one. Jason, when you were running for office, did anybody ever refer to you as radical candor? No, that is the only candor pun they did not make. (laughs) 
Well, speaking of taking liberties with names, the nice folks at NBKC have allowed you and I to play a fun game where we come up with what NBKC stands for, because it's a great mystery. Nobody knows what it is. Mm, So Jason and I took a little bit of time. We didn't show each other what we said. We're going to reveal to one another what we believe NBKC truly stands for. I'm excited for this game. You go first. All right. No bank can compare. Mm, that's good. Uh, I took some liberties with a K there. You made your own message. I yeah, like it. I love it. Uh, I went a different direction. <laughs> I have never break kneecaps. Okay. Okay. And I think they probably have a, a very friendly lending policy, and that's what I'm referencing. <laughs> oh, it's it, it, they're very very generous. Mm-hmm. Okay. No bank is this knee deep in curiosity. Mm, extra letters, but good. Uh, it's on message. Yeah. Okay. I have. Uh, National Bureau Keanu Cinema. What, what does that mean? I know a guy who works there. He's a big fan of The Matrix. Oh, they love Keanu Reeves at MBKC. It's a huge inside joke. Sure. I don't... They just walk around posters of Keanu Reeves everywhere. We made this up. But it... <laughs> it's true. <laughs> the nice folks at NBKC are letting us give you a box of amazing stuff just for opening a checking or savings account. You go to NBKC slash Diana. That's NBKC slash Diana. And you'll see it's a totally different bank than anything that you've ever experienced. And you get a box of swag from the show that's not available for sale. Maybe a water bottle, maybe a hat, but it's awesome. And you get all that stuff just for opening an account. Also, tell you something else about NBKC. NBKC is a member FDIC and an equal housing lender. So got that going for them. That's what they are. Mm. Sign up today. We all love a good subscription box, right? Jason, what's your favorite each month? KiwiCo. I mean, are you talking about that box that comes for True that's fun, educational, and helps him develop creative confidence to change the world? That would be the one. How did you know? (laughs) Well, I might be reading the copy from KiwiCo, but we do love that box. Yeah, absolutely. True loves it. As soon as he sees it, he wants to get it out right away and play with it. I mean, it's awesome. I don't know if you guys remember, but this season, we're not just taking any advertisers. We actually called everybody who we have been using for a long time, including KiwiCo. There are seven different lines to choose from for kids from all ages. They go from zero to 104. It actually says 104 in the copy. So if you're out there and you're 104, this is a podcast. It's like radio. Don't be alone. <laughs> That's what's happening right now in yeah. your ears. But the boxes you can choose from are Panda, Koala, Kiwi, Atlas, Doodle, Tinker, and Eureka Crates. And those are like age levels, basically. So you can grow with it. It's really cool. Each box comes with all the supplies needed for a project. There's actually more than one in each one. Detailed, easy-to-follow instructions written for kids and an educational magazine to learn even more about that crates theme. Kiwi is even my favorite fruit, and I think that that is influenced by how much I love KiwiCo. (laughs) You didn't think I could get my favorite fruit into this, and I did. KiwiCo is a convenient, affordable way to encourage your kids to be anything that they want to be. There's no commitment, and you can cancel any time. Monthly options start at $16.95 a month, including shipping, and our listeners get your first month free. You just go to KiwiCo.com. That's K-I-W-I-C-O.com slash Diana, to get your first month free. Every day counts when it comes to making a difference. So don't miss out on this amazing opportunity. And please tag us with your kids doing their first experiments because I love those photos. So 
A lot of companies have adopted radical candor as a framework. Have any of them come up with like a really good way to measure what happened before and after? Are there any research studies? (laughs) The measurement of radical candor is something that I think about all the time. And I don't, unfortunately, have a silver bullet on this. I think that there there are some interesting approaches. I think one good approach is to sort of measure psychological safety before you roll it out and then after. And it it will move psychological safety in the right direction. And there's, are you familiar with Amy Edmondson's work? Yes, she's coming on in November on the show. Oh, good. I love her and I love the Fearless Organization and I love her psychological safety survey, uh, which she has given to the world for free. So you, you can roll that out. And I think that I think if you're if you're practicing radical candor in the right way, you're definitely going to see an improvement in psychological safety. And then psychological safety is correlated with team success. So I do believe in the long in the long run that you can tie OKR achievement, you can tie non-regretted attrition, you can tie all these good things to radical candor, but but in many ways, those, those are lagging indicators. So you want to tie it to, to predictive indicators like psychological safety. And I'm sure you've gotten a ton of emails from people who have implemented it in their work. What kinds of feedback have they given you? So one of the, one of the radical candor train wrecks that I have most <laughs> often observed uh, is, so, so if you write a book about feedback, you're going to get some feedback on your... <laughs> and one of the things that does happen that I think is important to watch out for, and I write a lot about this in the second edition, is that people confuse radical candor and obnoxious aggression. So you'll walk into a meeting and someone will say, in the spirit of radical candor, and then they'll proceed to act like <laughs> a gar- garden variety jerk. And so that's not radical candor. And so making sure that people understand the importance of the care personally dimension of radical candor is, is important. Another, uh, another thing that organizations that have rolled radical candor out successfully have done is they've really focused first on getting the leaders to solicit feedback. I think one of the one of the mistakes that some people make uh, after I give a talk or after reading the book, one of the mistakes I guess therefore I make when giving the talks and writing the book <laughs> is is that they come away with the impression that radical candor is all about the boss criticizing the employee. And that's incorrect. The, there's an order of operations to radical candor. Step one is the bosses should be soliciting feedback and should work on creating an environment in which everyone feels comfortable soliciting feedback. Uh, Number two is giving praise. Radical candor is not just about criticism. It's praise is is an even more important uh, tool in your toolbox than criticism. So you want to focus on the good stuff. And, and, and then you want to focus on offering criticism. I think another thing that people want to do often is they want, they want to sort of operationalize this. They want to turn this into some sort of Six Sigma program. They want to build tools. In fact, I wanted to build a tool. I did build a tool and it was a, (laughs) it was a total failure. Uh, So, so, so much radical candor is, 
happens in impromptu two-minute conversations. So much of radical candor is about putting your phone in your pocket, looking someone in the eye and talking. <laughs> and, uh, and so building an app or something or trying to measure every single thing is kind of a value subtracting round trip. So making sure that we're remembering to be human and developing the ability to, to build stamina for these un uncomfortable conversations is what it's all about. So one of the things that I have found more helpful than measuring everything or more helpful than an app or a new performance management system is actually doing improv with teams, improvising radical mm -hmm. candor. We've been working with Second City, the, the improv group in Chicago, and, and working with teams to help them push through the discomfort, to help them build the stamina to respond to even the most difficult conversations or mistakes, conversational mistakes. We're still going to make them, by the way, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, with, with agency and grace. And that has been really fun. May I get an opinion of yours on a process that I've tried to implement with teams? I would love it. So I encourage teams to do what I call team process improvement meetings, Yeah, which are about 15 minutes a week. And the entire conversation is just about a process or a communication that either worked well or didn't work well throughout the week. So I talk about it like any uh, correspondence or interaction that created any kind of feelings. So frustration, confusion, anger, happiness uh, should be said in this meeting as a way for us to express what we like and what we don't like in our team culture. I love it. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's so genius about this is that very often two things happen. One is we start to develop a process to help us communicate better. And then the process kind of barnacles grow on the process. Mm -hmm. And, it, and it, it starts to hinder communication instead of helping it. And so being aware of when the, the way that we're communicating with each other is working and not working is a great way to, to sort of be, uh, be consistent about stripping those barnacles off of, your, off of your communication processes. So I think that is really good. And I think the other thing that's so smart about that uh, is giving voice to emotion, letting people say, this really pissed me off. This really bothered me. Because I think very often one of the reasons why we have trouble on the care personally dimension is we think we're not supposed to have emotion at work. And we're human beings. Of course, we're going to have emotion at work. And it doesn't, if we pretend we don't have it, then it tends to take on even bigger proportions than it would if we just dealt with it as it came. Yeah, that's how I think about these meetings as a way to let the frustration and the tension out so that nothing ever explodes. Yeah. I mean, radical candor is the framework that we bring to the meetings, but it's a way to let that air out. Yeah, so, so important because emotions can go critical, like, like thistle material. Right? <laughs> uh, and, and so you got to let it out. Well, this show has a very big audience of women, so I really want to cover the special challenges that women face with radical candor. You pointed out two uh, in the book. The first is that women have trouble getting feedback from men just in, in general. And in a previous episode last season, we actually learned about research that showed that when women do get feedback from men, 
it's actually pretty vague, not very useful. So can you talk about why this is a problem and what we can do about it? Yeah, I think that one of the, it was really interesting. I was talking to Frank Geary, who was a senior executive at, at Citibank, and he was responsible for diversity and inclusion there. And, and he, he said he'd, he'd walk into a meeting with a senior banker and a, and a junior analyst, both men, and the junior analyst would make a mistake and the senior banker at the end of the meeting would tell him in no uncertain terms about the mistake he had made, and he didn't make that mistake again. Next week, same meeting, same banker, different analyst. It's, this time the analyst is a woman, and the banker doesn't tell. The woman makes the same mistake the man made the week before, the, the male analyst made the week before, and the senior banker doesn't tell her about it. And it's not that he's trying to hurt her career or he's some kind of misogynist jerk or anything like that. The reason he doesn't tell her about it is that he's been taught since he was a child to pull his punches with women. And so he's afraid. He's more afraid to give radical candor to his female direct report than to his than to the direct report to her men. And he said this was this was the single biggest thing that held back women in their careers. So I think when you are a uh, a woman and you're working for a man, you really have to work a little extra hard to pull the feedback out out of him. To convince him that you're tough, that you can take it. And uh, and also by the way like that he's not water soluble. Even if you do start to cry, it's not the end of the world. And furthermore, men cry just as often as women at work, at least in my experience. So, so I think you've got to you you've got to work extra hard to solicit radical candor from from your your male peers and also especially from your male boss if you're a woman. Now, the other thing that happens is that when you are, as a woman at work, radically candid, when you offer some radical candor, you're more likely to be called to be called obnoxiously aggressive, to be unjustly accused of obnoxious aggression. Only it's not going to be called obnoxious aggression. It's going to be called bitchy or bossy or, or abrasive or whatever. And this is the kind of feedback that is really not helpful that women get, women get all the time. And, and it's pure gender bias. It's like the people expect you to be one way and then you're a different way and they, it blows people's minds. They don't like it. And so you've got to work a little bit, and this is unfair, but you've got to work a little bit harder on the care personally dimension. Whatever you do, don't back off your willingness to challenge people directly because that will kill your career. You'll wind up in manipulative insincerity or ruinous empathy. And those quadrants are even less effective than obnoxious aggression. So so you're going to get a unjustly accused of obnoxious aggression. You've got to take a minute to say to say, to show that you care, to say, look, I want to tell you something because I know this project is important to you. But don't get dragged too high up on the care personally dimension. Don't try to be the angel in the office who's who's always doing all the emotional labor and all the office housework, because then you'll burn out and you'll be pissed off. So uh, that's my advice. Easier said than done, I know. 
Whew, we've had a busy weekend, Jason. There's been two birthday parties, there's been lots of true sporting events, and right now we're recording this during the commercial of a Chiefs game. You keep reminding me. <laughs> How many different pizza meals have we had this weekend? I've had pizza three times. Yeah, and what we haven't had was a lot of vegetables, have we? That is correct. Thank goodness that at our house we have Balance the Superfood Shot. I don't know if you've been shopping at Whole Foods and you walk by those tiny little cans that say Balance on them, and they say they're providing half of your daily servings of fruits and and vegetables, but thank goodness that we both have these open to crack them open. You shake them first. Ah, that's the sweet sound of balance, the superfood shot. And at least that I know that I'm getting all of the nutrients that I need to carry me on through the day. They're actually really good. I think they're really tasty. There's a reason that they tell you to eat fruits and vegetables on a daily basis, and not all of us can do it. That's why it's really good to have in your pantry. Whether you're traveling, you can just throw a couple of these with you in your backpack. It keeps much better than, uh, let's say, a muffin or a banana that I've tried before. Yeah, eat broccoli. Yeah. yeah. They pack in $5 worth of organic products into each little bottle. It's amazing how many nutrients you can get in one little convenient travel size bottle. But each one doesn't cost $5, which is nice. No. In fact, if you go to superfoodshot.co, you can apply the code Diana to get 30% off your first order. That's superfoodshot.co, just Diana as the promo code. We'll put the links below and you get a discount on your first order. Crack one open today and let us know what you think. Well, Kim, last question. Having implemented radical candor all throughout the world, I bet, what are like the top things we have to make sure we're doing when we're trying to have our team use radical candor much more often? I think one of the most important things to remember is that radical candor gets measured not at the speaker's mouth, but at the listener's ear. So especially when you're in a multicultural situation, you've got to make sure that you're saying things in a way that people can hear them. So for example, I, w I rolled out radical candor uh, on teams all over the world, including in, in Tel Aviv and in Tokyo, so Israel and Japan. And radical candor sounds very different in Tel Aviv than it does in Tokyo. Okay. Uh, in, in fact, in, in Japan, with the team in Japan, I called it polite persistence because polite was sort of a good way for them to think about caring personally and persistence was an easier way for them to think about challenging directly. But if I had called it polite persistence in Israel, they would have thought I was telling them to go read mismanage or something. <laughs> uh, they wouldn't have thought it was a good use of their time. So you got to make sure you adjust for the culture in which you're working. But you also, even more crucially and, and in a way that's more difficult, you've got to make sure you're adjust, adjusting for the human being you're talking to, the person. So if you're being radically candid with me, it's going to sound very different from being radically candid with my sister. My sister's a better listener. She's more sensitive than I am. So you want to attend more to care personally when you, when you talk with my sister. And you want to probably go further than you're even comfortable going on challenge directly if you're managing me. How do I know that? How do I know the difference? Yeah, gauging radical candor is really important. And I think the, the, the important thing to remember is that 
Radical candor is even more about listening than it is about talking. So you want to start in kind of a neutral place. You don't want to start all the way at the outer edge of challenge directly. And then you want to notice the person's response. And there's an infinite number of responses that you'll get, but I'm going to boil it down to three. They'll be sad, they'll be mad, or they won't have heard you. They'll be oblivious. And if they're sad or they're mad, that's your cue to move up on care personally. That's your cue to say, I can see I've upset you. I can see that that I didn't see, say this in the best way. How can I say it in a way that's, that's easier for you to hear? So you want to move up on care personally without moving in the wrong direction on challenge directly. You don't want to say, oh, it doesn't matter. I didn't really mean it. Because you did mean it, and it does matter. That's why you started the conversation. And, and if the person, on the other hand, is being oblivious, if they're not hearing you, I think that that's when you have to move further out than you're probably comfortable moving on challenge directly. And that's what happens nine times out of 10. You've finally gotten your courage to say something. You've said something, but you said it so gently the person didn't even hear you or has no idea what you mean. And and it's tempting to give up at that point and just say, oh, well, I tried. <laughs> you know, They didn't hear it too bad. But it is your job to be clear. And, and sometimes being clear means saying things in a very blunt way. And, and we're often reluctant to do that. But it's kinder in the end to get through to the person. Kim, thank you so much. Where can listeners follow you, get to know more about you, and eagerly await the next book that you're working on? Radicalcandor.com is the website, and you can follow us at Candor or at Kimball Scott. Awesome. You know, I almost named this podcast Radical Candor because my last name is Candor, but I didn't want to do that I to love you. That. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought about it, and I was like, no, I respect Kim too much. I don't, I don't want to get in a trademark battle. Well, when I restart the podcast, you will be the first guest. How about that? (laughs) This was such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I so hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Kim. The link to the new version of Radical Candor that's coming out this week is in the show notes for this episode, as well as all of the links for Kim. And I've also included links to all of our advertisers for the show. These sponsors are the reason that we have 20 episodes this season instead of 10. They're the reason that we can improve the audio quality of the shows. And they have just great products that I want you to try. So please give them some love. And don't stop listening to this episode without making sure that you're subscribed. And if you've gotten any value from this show or any of the other episodes, please take a second to review the show and share it with somebody that you know. And if you have a personal story that you want to share about what we talked about today or some unanswered questions, please join me, my producer, Jesse, and many of our former guests on the show over at the Facebook group, Professional AF Podcast Insiders. Come on over, say hello. I'd love to meet you and hear about your own journey of curiosity. I am Diana Kander with your weekly reminder that curiosity is your superpower. I'll talk to you soon.